Thanks, Ben, for leading us in worship, and welcome to Neighborhood Bible Church, and uh, we're thrilled that you're here to worship with us. We've got a beautiful sunny day, kids. Awesome. That was really cool. It was a blessing to us to hear, and uh, we're thankful. Listen, I want to invite you to go ahead and take out your, uh, your worship folder here like this, and inside there should be some notes. Mine are gone. Um, I donated them to my family here. Uh, but you can go ahead and pull those out, and uh, there's, a, there's a Bible in front of you. I don't know if we call them pew Bibles, since we don't technically have pews, but they're uh, at least chair Bibles. So you can, uh, you can feel free to follow along with us there. I wonder if I asked you this morning just to write down on a piece of paper what, what it is that you need today. Just in waking up this morning and thinking through, these are the things that I need, and the different thoughts that have crossed your mind. Um, how many of you, uh, church should be the most honest place in the world, right? Uh, so let's just be honest here this morning. How many of you at some point uh, in this morning uh, thought to yourself, I need coffee? Let me just see a raise of hands, okay? Yeah, we're all addicted to coffee. We can just confess that right now. Um, that ran through my, my brain. It actually, I was acutely made aware of it by something that happened to me this morning. And uh, I don't know if old age is setting in or what, but um, in my bathroom, okay, is, uh, is clear liquid soap, okay, the kind that you just, you know, pump out and you get some soap. Right next to that is clear liquid hair gel. <clears throat> yeah, you can see what's coming here. Um, as I start to put gel in my hair, it starts to bubble up. And uh, my hair was a little wet, and I just thought, this is really, really odd. And uh, realizing that uh, a couple hours ago, I squirted the soap and put it into my hair. And uh, so I'm actually kind of toying with uh, just a whole new hair care pr- uh, program <laughs> where you shampoo, you get out of the shower, then you put soap uh, in your hair. And uh, you know what? At that point, I became acutely aware that I really did need coffee at that point. Some of you in a few hours are going to think, man, I need a nap. You might even say that. I need a nap right now. Some of you kids, you know, maybe this weekend, Evan, you're like, mom, dad, I need my allowance, right? You're just like, I need it. There's something cool I want to get or something I want to do with my money. And when we talk about needs, we, we throw this word around a whole bunch. And uh, I want to just show you a couple of pictures here because I think they'll help illustrate my point. Um, this is a picture from this last summer. And uh, this is my, my four-year-old daughter, Tegan. She was three at the time. I don't know how well it comes up on the screen, but Tegan needs a clean shirt. She has, um, she has all kinds of different things from Mexico right there. Her face, she could use a, a good wipe down there. Uh, if you look at Tegan, you just go, you know, what does she need? Um, part of the look on her face to me says, I need a country to run and lead. I mean, that's just kind of who, who Tegan is. And she's coming at the camera like, Dad, let me take over for that. You're not doing a good job. Um, this is a picture of, of a guy named Carl, and he, uh, he's here every week serving in a variety of ways. You might look at Carl working with insulation and say, Carl, you need to be careful, okay? There's just stuff going on. You're in a, you know, in a building working. Uh, you need to get some water. It's really hot in there. Here's a picture of my son and, and uh, the, the pastor's son playing soccer. Now, you can't tell from this picture, but that road is about like this, okay? It's really angled. Now, you might look at this and say, these kids need a soccer field. Right? At least a level soccer field. One with less um, rocks and variety of items along the side of the road. Uh, this, is, this is a picture at the orphanage that we serve at. And you might look at that picture and say, man, those, those orphans need a bigger pool. Uh, they, need, they need heat in their water. That's just hose water. That's the, that's the lady coming around putting, putting water in the pool. And uh, you might look at that and, and think about some needs. On a different trip, this wasn't this summer, but we heard that 
um, the, the people, we just saw that, that people wear the same shoes year after year after year, and they wear out, as you know. And so, um, and so an organization called Club Dust began to provide shoes and go to different corporations, and they took nothing down but brand new shoes. And uh, they got word out to the community and said, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just invite you to come and, and have your feet washed by, by some servants of, of Jesus, and, uh, and we'll fit you with a brand new pair of shoes. And you know what? It met a need. The town showed up in droves. And these are people waiting in line to go in there. And I could show you other pictures where they're just taking wet ones, you know, and just wiping down the feet, getting them clean, and just being fit with a brand new pair of shoes. Now, this is a guy named Hosway, and he just needs to look less scary. That's really, <laughs> that's really the only need that I see there. You know, bottom line is this. Our needs can appear to change depending on the context, can't they? Those of you who've traveled to third world countries, those of you who've been to other places than where we live right here, you, you, you come home from a trip like that and what you do is you realize, I don't really need coffee. I don't need hair gel. I don't really need a lot of the things that on and on I go, I say that I need. Because when you go to a different part of the world, you look at it and go, wow, needs are different. I'll tell you what, the, the kids who were splashing around in the pool at the orphanage, uh, if we were to have the same kind of exercise, they would say this, we don't need a, a bigger pool. They're super thankful for the ones they have. Because that pool, if you look at that neighborhood, is the happening place. That's the resort for kids right there. They have actually got it pretty good. So it all can kind of be, uh, you know, comparative. When you, when you see things like that, I'm struck by this on, like over and over. And that is, how can people with so little be so completely happy? And it forces questions. It forces a spotlight into my own life about how I live. R.C. Sproul was a famous philosopher and theologian. Uh, and he says, he was asked this question, what is the greatest spiritual need in the world today? And here was his answer. He said, the greatest spiritual need in the people's lives is to discover the true identity of God. He went on to say that most non-religious people do not really understand the God that they're rejecting. If they did, they would probably call a truce, at least a temporary truce, to make sure that this battle is worth continuing. The person that was asking this question went on to ask a follow-up question and said this, what is the greatest need in the lives of church people, the greatest spiritual need in the lives of church people? Here was his answer, to discover the true identity of God. Same answer. Whether you're inside the church or outside the church. He went on to say, if believers really understood the character and the personality and the nature of God, it would revolutionize their lives. I think it's true that the same need feeds the person who's seeking hard after God. It feeds their search to discover the true identity of God. It also trains rookie believers. Those who come and just, they just accepted Christ, they believed on His name for forgiveness, and, and that need of, of getting to know who this God is nurtures them, guides them, trains them up. And you know what? For those who are veterans, those of you in this church this morning who've gone to church on Easter and maybe every Sunday for most of your life, and you've walked after God for a long time, I think that same need sustains you and keeps you on the straight and narrow. 
He said it would revolutionize our lives, and I think he's right. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is in the New Testament, right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, in essence, chronicles what happened right after the resurrection. Jesus comes to earth. He walks the earth for a few years with a handful of men. Uh, a relatively small number, number of people in the, world, in the world see him and interact with him. He dies. He rises again. And supernaturally, he, he departs and says that he's coming back. And Acts picks up the story where that leaves off. And it shows this band of followers that would become and be called the church. And I want to kind of camp out in Acts 17 this morning. And I want to just have you look in on a conversation that, that the Apostle Paul has with a variety of people. Now, uh, I, I've called this message this morning that God, God is not. And... I think this is true, but oftentimes we can, we can discover what is by defining what something is not. Isn't that true? Uh, let, me just, let me just give you a little test, and you can, you can kind of follow along with this. But let me describe for you a car, okay? This is a kind of a car, and um, this car is not considered quick. Uh, this car is not lowered. It doesn't have spinner rims on it. Um, this car is not clean. Uh, this car doesn't have a top or doors, Anyone want to fire off a guess of what kind of car I'm talking about? A Jeep. Okay, some of you have an unfair advantage because you know uh, what kind of car I drive. Maybe you, you, you guessed that. But you see how you could, you could arrive at that conclusion just by understanding these parameters that it's not. And with every not, you, you get a little bit of a clearer picture of what is. And that's what we're going to do this morning. As we work our way through the text, we're going we're gonna to blow apart some things that God is not. How about describing college to a high school student? You know what one of the easiest ways to do is just say, you know what, college, it's not like high school. You know what, you don't have to go to class. Uh, you also don't have to graduate. Uh, but, but, but no one's holding your hand uh, at, at every moment. And it's just not like high school. It's hard to describe, but know that it's just not like high school. Some people uh, discover this you know, in, in the dating scene. You, know, you, you uh, date a couple of clowns. And you just realize, you know, Party Marty here is not the guy you want to marry. And you, you begin to figure that out. You're like, okay, thanks for letting me date you because now I know exactly who I don't want to marry. And it would be you. Um, so there are, there are misunderstandings about God. And, and there, are, there are myths about God that, that, that can turn into truth in the hearts and minds of people. Because maybe they've heard them over and over. Maybe they've thought about them. Or maybe they haven't thought about them. And when they're forced to think about who is God, they reach way back into an experience that they had. Or they, they, they reach way back into something that someone told them once about who God is. I want you to look with me in verse 21 of, of Acts chapter 17. And in verse 21 it says this. All, this is Paul, by the way, and he's, he's, he's traveling around and, and he's, he's in the city of Athens. And some of the ancient names we have to go back and translate. Now, what does that mean? What city was that? Where is that? But this is Athens, like regular old Athens that we would know where the Olympics were held. But this is long before those Olympics. Verse 21 says, All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Let me, let me bump up uh, one, one verse to you. 
Um, actually, no, I won't. I'll just, I'll just tell you about it. Um, Paul basically has been invited to, to a meeting place. And, and this is a place that, that's called Mars Hill, and it's a place that's there today. You could go and tour it. I've never been there, but I'm sure it's nice. Uh, but this was a, a gathering place where, where people did. Think of this a little bit as kind of a precursor to the talk show. And they're like, today's guest is Paul. You know, this guy's Paul is going to tell us about some different things. And they used to love to come and just debate and dialogue and talk about all the latest ideas. I think where this happens more informally now, uh, if, if I look around our culture, it happens at Starbucks sometimes. I've had tons of conversation with people just, just over, over a cup of coffee. Uh, whether I knew them or not, sometimes I've joined into conversations. This happens a lot in chat rooms. People get on to a, to a, to a chat room. They just, there's, a, there's a posting. And then you, you reply to that and you argue back and forth and you dialogue and this and that. Well, that's the sort of thing that happened pre-internet is they just came to this place called Mars Hill. And Paul has been invited to come and to, to talk. Verse 22, let's just keep going. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus. How do you say that? Uh, and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Pretty bold, right? He walks into this meeting. He's the invited guest. Hey, tell us your, your ideas. Tell us your strange ideas that you're teaching. And he says, hey, of all these things that you're worshiping, I've gone around to your temples. Now, if you, if you know anything about Greek worship, uh, that was not just a Sunday school type environment. Paul walking around there, why did he do it? He wanted to get to know the heart of these people. What was important to them? And he found this inscription to one. It said, to the unknown God. And he comes in and he makes this really bold proclamation. Hey, that which you're worshiping as unknown, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell you about him. The first one that I want you to fill out in your outline is just quite simply, God is not unknown. God is not unknown. Now, people have long been fascinated and frustrated and even depressed at what seems like this infinite chasm between themselves and God. He seems aloof to people. The Gospel writer John, in chapter 1, verse 18, he wrote this. said, no one has ever seen God. Now, the ancient mind, mindset, the ones who Paul was talking with at this, this, this talk show type setting at Mars Hill, they would all agree to that. Some of their own people, Plato said this, never man and God can meet. A guy named Celsus, who was kind of a contemporary of the uh, gladiator movie days, you know, with Marcus Aurelius and all those kinds of guys. He said this, God is a way beyond everything. And T.R. Glover, a, a scholar of the Bible, wrote this, whatever God was, he was far from being within reach of ordinary men. So people would not be shocked appalled, antagonistic to the idea of someone saying, no one has ever seen God. But here's where the, the, the rub comes. The Gospel writer John doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And in the context of John chapter 1, he's writing about Jesus Christ. 
We can know God because of revelation. Paul, if you go to Acts 9 later on today and read the conversion, the story of Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, he understands this because what he's proclaiming to these people so boldly, why he's able to be so bold, is that he had divine revelation. He was supernaturally told something. A miracle happened. And he's now just proclaiming and repeating what he heard. We call that divine revelation. So God is not unknown. Let me just give you an an illustration of this. This is something that we did as a family devotion a while ago. And uh, and here it is. I have a number right now on a piece of paper in my pocket. And uh, it could be any number in the whole world. And um, and, and let's just say uh, I happen to drive a Jeep. Let's just say I'm not going to really do this because there's a million to one chance that some of you could get this right and I can't afford to get my Jeep away. But let's just say that if you guessed it, you got it right, you could have my Jeep and you could drive it home today. Okay? Now, for those of you sitting here going, okay, um, how, how can I figure out what, what number is in Dave's pocket? Now, what you could do is you could look into my eyes and you could go, what number do I see on his face? Well, there's no number on my face that I know of. Uh, and so you could try that. You could start working uh, you know, math algorithms and try to figure it out and go, what's the probability of this, that, or the other thing? You could, you could just completely you know, guess. And if you had just multiple guesses, you could just keep going for as long as you decided. Uh, now, any, anyone want to take a, a stab at what the number is? I need just a few people. What number? Um, 20. Okay, 20. 10. 8. 3. One. Okay, this could be any number. We're, we're all staying in the low numbers. Uh, so far, no one said it. 99. 99, that's a high number. 198. Okay, 198. Now, now, let me just give you a whole different category here, okay? Um, Timmy, come up here for one, one second. Okay, now some of you may have heard that. Did you hear that? Um, now, we could go on all day like this, right? Or we could simply do this. Timmy, what's the number? 714. Okay, 714. Let's see if he's right. Wow! How did you guess that? Seven, no, you can't have my Jeep. But you can have this piece of paper. This will always remind you that you almost want a Jeep. 714. Do you, do you see how simple this is? Now, Timmy had to, Timmy knows me a little bit, right? So, so Timmy trusted me that I probably wasn't pulling a prank on him. But you could guess at this. You could try to figure it out on your own. But there's probably no way that you're going to come up with this unless you're told like that. And that's the way God is. God hasn't left it just to be completely uh, random chance. Here's where the, the, the challenge is, though. Let's say you have one shot at this number. Let's say that it's infinitely better than a Jeep. Let's say it's a life or death situation, and there's ten different people up here all telling you a different number. How do you know which one to believe? God is not unknown. Belief is, is critical to this whole process. Was Paul reliable? Paul came and began to talk to these people, proclaiming the number 714, so to speak. I know God. I'm going to proclaim to you the unknown God. And just like some of you sitting here might feel, it's, well, who is this person to claim he knows God over anyone else? Because last week it was a different person on the talk show and they were saying something completely different. How do I know this guy is any different? 
The human mind tends to reject that which it cannot understand. And God, by definition, if I were to just say to you, describe for me God, I don't care if you've never been to church or if you go to church regularly, God, by definition, is, is undefinable. You can't quite wrap everything around God. And so what happens sometimes is people just go, that's too big for me, and I reject it. Much of truth that we see in life, and certainly in the Bible, is paradox. And paradox is two competing, seemingly competing kinds of truths that just don't seem to, to gel or fit in our minds. We have finite minds, and we can't understand certain concepts that just, it's like two fighting roommates in a one-bedroom apartment, and they just can't quite get along in our brains. So sometimes... We just evict one roommate. And we say, I, I can't figure this out, and so I reject that altogether, and we'll just camp out on this one side. And whether you're a Christian who follows hard after God or a non-Christian, we all tend to do this sometimes. And it's too hard to wrestle through or plow through it. Jesus was most famous for these kinds of paradoxical truths. If you were to read the Bible and just start making a list of characters, you would come up with an incredibly long list of characters from the Bible who are losers that win. That's just the way it goes. We've gone over this because we've been doing a series on some of the teachings of Jesus. But it's the weak who are strong, Jesus says. It's the last who will be first. It's blind people who really see. And those who see that are completely blind. It's those who seemingly have nothing and live in Mexico and don't have any shoes at all that are rich. And those that drive the sweetest car and live in the sweetest house and have all the power and money in the world that are poor. And we just can't marry those two sometimes. And so sometimes we reject the notion of that. Can we know the unknown God? Yes, we can. And that's what Paul is proclaiming. So what is God like? John 1.14 says this, The Word, and it's referring to Jesus Christ, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We get to know God by getting to know Jesus. It's quite simple. I want to read on. Verses 24 to 26 say this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men that they should, not, that, that, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set before them, or set for them, and the exact places where they should live. Here's the second God is not. God is not man made. Isn't that a relief? Most of us have man made stuff, and as great as your man made stuff is, it breaks, right? That's why we have warranties, and sometimes you just, it doesn't function the way it's supposed to, and uh, God not being man made is a really good thing. Children, you just sang to us, You and I were made to worship. And it's not the other way around. We don't make God. He makes us. We were made to serve God's purposes, not the other way around. Sometimes we like to put God and kind of create our own God that doesn't exist. Maybe sometimes we try to do that with people. 
We get to know people, and in any relationship, you have to just come to the terms and say, this is who this person really is. Now, we'd call someone psychotic who says, well, I don't really like this part of them, so I'm just going to kind of erase that part away. I'm just going to not just even acknowledge they exist. And uh, you know what? I don't really like that person's hair being blonde, so they're going to have brown hair. But they don't. I know, but to me they do. Okay. And I don't really like short people at all, so they're going to be really, really tall. Uh, but they're kind of short. I know. But to me, I mean, this is my friend. And at some point, we'd say, you know, come on over. There's a nice, um, there's a nice green place where you can come, and they'll care for you really well. You get to wear a really cool white jacket. And uh, we'd help a person like that. We begin to think that there's, there's something wrong with that. And yet we come to God sometimes and we, we want to create God in our own image. We want to create a God that serves us. Doesn't that sound better than us serving anyone? That's just kind of how we're wired. A wrong question is this. Do you worship? A better question is, what do you worship? And the, the point being this. Every person who's ever been created worships. We were just created to do so. Some of you have traveled and you know this. People are just, they have this inbred, uh, hardwired nature that says, I need to worship something. Augustine said this, man was made for God and his heart is forever restless until it finds rest in him. Some of you have seen the worship of other cultures. You've seen monuments to kings that that there's no heart connection to at all because you didn't grow up in that culture. But you see and you go, wow. This is very much an object of worship. Some cultures worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And you've you've maybe uh, listened with with interest and intent to say, how do these people worship and where did that come from? And it's very easy when you're in another culture to identify things of, of worship. But what about turning the lens or the spotlight back on Americans? What is it that we worship? I'll tell you a good place to start is to go to any grocery store and go find a magazine rack. Okay? First of all, you might, you might come to the conclusion we just worship colorful paper because there's like a million of them you know, that we see. Barnes and Nobles, you, know, you can almost just be blown away by it. But you know what? You just begin to, to go around. You say beauty. Beauty and skin. There's a lot of that on this wall right here. Toys, electronics, and cars, and all that stuff. There's a lot of it. Leisure and free time, and vacation, and travel to exotic beaches. There's a lot of that in front of me. This must be what's important to this this country. How about just in our dialogue, and in our discussion, and in our talk? We live in a, a fairly wealthy part of the nation. The stock market is on the tip of certain people's tongues. Real estate is constantly on the tip of people's tongues. Uh, prices of this, prices of that, cost of that going up or down. Money is there. None of this is bad in and of itself. But I happen to be friends with a ton of international students. And you just begin to ask them and say, what is it you think Americans worship? And they have a far different answer than us. Now, we would all tend to look at this and say, you know what, that's just hobby. Or that's just recreation. Or I'm just talking about life. When I'm talking about the mortgage and the cost of gas and, you know, uh, the, the pre-entrance exam to my kids, uh, you know, preschool and, 
and the 40K I've got to kick out for kindergarten this year at the private school. I mean, all that, that's just life. But someone from another culture can come and say, wow, that looks a little bit more like worship. might help if we define worship. Just three simple things. You could jot these down if you want. But you worship whatever you sacrifice for. You worship whatever you sacrifice for. A second thing is this. You worship whatever you give yourself to. And thirdly, you worship whatever you dwell on. Now, for those of you who would say, I worship God. God is at the absolute top place in my life. You could just run it through this filter. Do you sacrifice for God? If so, what does that look like? Do you give yourself to God? Do you dwell on God? Or is there something else? I have four beautiful children. They're on my heart and mind constantly. But do you see how easy it would be to just kind of turn a gift that God gave to me and begin to worship the gift instead of the gift giver? There are, there are people who sacrifice for another person, give themselves wholly over to another person, dwell on another person. What happens when the other person lets them down? Their whole world is shattered. We were never meant to be objects of worship as people one to another. God is not man-made, and that is exactly why He is fit to be bowed down to, to be adored, to be worshipped by all mankind. So God is not unknown. God is not man-made. Thirdly, God is not far. Look at me in verses 27. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Did God frustrate us, limit us, create us with just enough to know that there's, there's more to this life than we're experiencing just so that we'd seek after Him? Just so that we'd reach out and find Him? Or is this thing that we read about in Scripture called sin, this great divide that separates us from our Father and has caused a chasm, and so that's why there's this essence that we don't feel close to God. Again, I talked about paradox a second ago. I think the Bible speaks to both of those scenarios. And I don't think it's camped out in just one or the other. Some of you are going to go hunt for Easter eggs today. And you're going to go look around and you're going to go and try to find colorful eggs and have a fun time running around trying to do that, try not to step on them. I wonder if you know we think about God this way, that maybe God takes good things and instead of just giving them to us, He kind of hides them. And then He sits back and He just takes delight in watching us you know, search them out and like, hotter, colder. you know, and, and we just go, God, why don't you just give it to us? From days of old, as the kids saying, we have hearts filled with wonder. And that's put there by God. The good news, the gospel, is this, that God is close. Now, last summer, I just want to tell you a quick story. We were camping along the American River, and uh, we had the opportunity to take some rafts down some rapids and whatnot, and, and my mom and stepdad came and camped with us for a few days, 
And um, she said, hey, why don't you and your wife and your two boys go and take a run down the river? And it took about an hour and a half to go up there, cruise up, come down the river, and I'll, I'll watch the kids. We're like, thanks, Ma, that's awesome. Well, we come back from that trip, and she tells us this story. Uh, basically, we had some, some fishing poles there, and kids were fishing and, and hanging out on the, on the side of the river, fishing and whatnot. And, um, and Tegan, again, my three-year-old at the time, she's pretty quick, you know, so she's, uh, she's easy to just kind of like lose a little bit. And uh, my mom's like, I'm really embarrassed to tell you this, but, but here's what happened while you were gone. We were sitting at the campsite, and in a moment, in a flash, we just were like, where's Tegan? And we went walking kind of around this little group of bushes, and, uh, and here comes Tegan walking toward them, and, uh, and she's kind of rubbing her head a little bit. Well, as my mom kind of looked around the corner and saw what was going on, uh, there was a fish hook in her head. And uh, not only a fish hook was in her head, but it was still attached to the line, and dragging behind her in the sand is the fishing pole. Now, Tegan, my three-year-old, had been watching me and the older kids cast, right, and then reel it in. And then cast and reel it in. Well, any of you who fished at all know that's a little bit tricky for a three-year-old. But she found this pole, and we suppose she probably tried to cast and got her head stuck at some point. And, um, and here she comes, just not a tear, but just kind of scratching at her head. Um, and my mom, my mom said that she sat there, and they, they could not get the hook out. And she's like, well, I better get this out before mom and dad come home or they'll never let me watch the kids again. (laughs) A person comes by with like actual, Russ would know about this, but actual like thing that you pull fish hooks out of fish's mouths with. And they got that thing out of my daughter's head. Now, here's why I bring that story up. Some of us go through life and we're frustrated by this. We look at a fishing pole. We go, yeah, I kind of know that we're supposed to do something with this. But, but we're the ones with the hook in our head. We're dragging the fishing pole behind us. And frankly, we're kind of scratching our head. You ever feel spiritually clumsy? Like, man, I, I should have this down by now. I've been a Christian a long time. I've read a lot of the Bible. I really care about this. You ever just describe yourself, if you're really honest, as just uncommitted? As having a, a really weak faith? You ever just feel incompetent as a child of God? The great news is Jesus comes along. And here's what he said in the book of Mark. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What an understatement. He was God. And he says, hey, those of you who are messy and unfit and incompetent and dragging fishing poles behind you, gather around. The kingdom of God is near. And then he just says, repent and believe the good news. Many of us feel this, that we must clean up the mess and live right before we can come to God. In the words of Tegan, it would be, I, I've got to get this fishing thing figured out before I can come and be loved by the Father. And God says, no, that's not it at all. And God says, the party's open before that. In fact, you could even build a case that the opposite is true. Until we admit that we're a mess, Jesus seems to have nothing to do with people. Look at the Pharisees. He kept them at arm's length. At arm's length, they weren't, they weren't able to get what Jesus had to offer because they thought they already had it. Just listen to John 1.10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become children of God. The great news is that the father came looking in the same way my mom came looking for Tegan. God comes looking for us in our mess and says, welcome. You're not supposed to figure out fishing before you meet me. God came near is the great Christmas story. God with us. Emmanuel, a baby was born. Jesus is here on the scene. Here's the great story of Easter. This is why Christians are happy. This is why they celebrate and have a deep sense of joy at Easter time. Is that God is not angry at us. That's the great story of Easter. Anger is another word for wrath. And the wrath of God. Doesn't that sound intimidating? Sometimes I think we remove the word wrath because it's like wrath. I don't know what that even means in the Greek. I don't even know what you're talking about. It just means anger. It means punishment. We've all tasted of wrath. Some of it good, some of it very ungodly and fallen and sinful. And punishment, the just punishment, the just anger of God at sin, against cruelty, against abuse, against injustice, against all the things that we should be mad at because they're wrong and they need to be punished. The great news of Easter is that Jesus took all that anger on Himself. I prayed this the other day and it got a chuckle out of my kids. I didn't really intend it to. I was just speaking uh, from the heart. But I, but I thank God for, for giving Jesus the spanking. Instead of me. And that's what it is. A spanking was needed. A spanking was deserved. A spanking was due. And Jesus took it on himself so that we wouldn't have to. God is not mad at us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You can just write this down. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to think of how much relational hurt has gone on in your life because you mistakenly thought someone else was mad at you. You heard from someone else. You read a look across the dinner table. You inferred from something that wasn't said or done. This person's angry at me. And it caused separation. And it caused bitterness. And it caused internal yuckiness. And then when you get it cleared up and you realize, no, 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 I wasn't mad at you. I had, a, I had a bitter taste of something and I kind of made a face. I wasn't at you. You thought I was mad at you? No, 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 no. And you, you have that restoration. I think there are people walking around that view God as a vengeful, angry, God full of wrath, which He is. Or else He wouldn't be just. But He's not angry at us. That's the point of the cross. He took out all of that punishment and dumped it on His Son so that we could be in relationship with Him. 1 John 3, 4 says this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him there is no sin. How do these people that John's writing to know that He takes away sin? Because they've experienced it. They've tasted of it. The kid's saying this lyric, You and I are forgiven and free. 
And some of us in this room this morning have tasted of the freedom of being forgiven in Christ. We've experienced it in our home. We know how to deal with the junk of sin that keeps churning up day after day after day. We confess it. And we're able to forgive because we've tasted of God's forgiveness. We know about forgiveness because God's shown it to us. Eugene Peterson, in a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, writes this, When we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us, but He enters into our trouble and saves us. And that's the beauty of Easter. There's one more just bonus God is not, and that is that God is not dead. You can go and read this. In fact, this would be a great family exercise or personal exercise to go read the account in Luke 24. He is not here, for He is risen. As the women go looking for Jesus and looking for His body, the giant stone's been rolled away and the tomb is found empty. He's not here. He's not dead. And God is not dead today. This is why we celebrate around the world as Christians victory over death, hope beyond the grave, and the forgiveness of sins. I want you to look at the reaction to this, and then we'll close out our service. Look with me in verse 32. First in in verse 31. Uh... Actually, verse 30, Paul says this, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. That's Christ. He has given proof of, all, of, of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, watch the reaction of people at the talk show, of people at the local place to discuss new and strange ideas. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Verse 33 says, at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. In your notes, I want you to do something. I want you to circle the word some. Some sneered. Some of the people sneered. Another word you could circle is this. But others said, we want to hear more about this. We want to hear you again on the subject. And in verse 34, you could circle a few. A few became followers of Paul and believed. They listened to the message and they believed. What about you? Where are you at this morning? What is your response? Sneering at the resurrection? Feeling like maybe I should hear more about this? Not ready to make a decision, but need to hear more? Maybe you say, my heart resonates with this. I know this is true. I believe this. I want to invite the band to come on up. And they're going to lead us in a song called Broken and Beautiful. And I want you to catch the lyric of this song. We're not going to sing along to it. We're just going to let the the words and the worship of it fall over us. But Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And sometimes we overdo this, we overthink this, we over-strategize what it takes to be saved. 
And a thief on a cross that was right next to Jesus made a simple profession of faith. And it was affirmed by Jesus Himself. You're going to be with me in paradise today. I want you just to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as I lead us in a prayer. Some of you this morning, I think, need to just get plugged into a church. You need to get plugged into a group of people, a community of people that will help you in your spiritual journey. Perhaps you've made a profession of faith. Perhaps you believe, but you haven't grown. You're prone to the attack of the enemy, to temptation. You're not overcoming. That's why we gather. We gather as weak people. We, we gather as people who continually get the fish hook stuck in our head. And we need God to help us out. We need God to guide us. Some of you this morning need to pray a prayer that just says, I give up. I repent. I turn. I change my mind. I'm sorry for the wrong I've done. And I don't know much about it, but I trust you to forgive me of my sins. 